Before we begin, we'd like to make the minor control adjustments. Oh, oh, something broke. Hold on one moment, please. Just a moment. Thank you. Come on, buddy. Get with the beat. That's me. You better believe Will Dr. Humphrey, Dr. Victoria Humphrey, please pick up the epidermal cell scanner from bay number three? Thank you. You ready to make some history? I'm ready already. Let's go! W Radio. You're in. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 677, and together we're going to celebrate the magic of the Disney parks, movies, and more here on the podcast, my weekly live video, community events, blog, and more. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and find everything else at www.radio.com. So I invited you to journey with me back in time for a piece of Walt Disney World's hidden history and a well-developed concept that you probably never heard of, the Fort Wilderness Adventure House. We're going to look at its origins, changes, its relationship to a classic Disney attraction, and take a virtual walkthrough room by room. We're also going to look at another lost concept called Sadie Mae's Palace and how the two might have significantly changed the Fort Wilderness Resort as a whole. Then stay tuned for our Disney trivia question of the week where you can win a prize package and more updates at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. Since the day that Disneyland opened its gates in July 1955, we of Disney fans have been given, or should I say gifted, countless incredible attractions, experiences, and memories thanks to the creators, artists, magicians, and imagineers that have graced the halls of Flower Street from wed through Imagineering. But there's only so much land and only so many ideas that can become part of the Disney parks. And that means that even more ideas and concepts sit on literal and figurative shelves and in drawers in those same hallowed halls. And some of them are incredibly intriguing and who knows, might even be dusted off someday because they say no good idea ever dies at Imagineering. And of course, every effort at Disney is one that is grounded in team and teamwork but they also come from the mind, imagination, and pen of one person. And for many years, one of those people was Mark Davis. Back on show 423, as we tried to highlight the life and legacy of some Disney legends, we took a look at some of his work. Um, he was known as, as Walt Disney's Renaissance man for his work in animation and theme parks and Imagineering due in part because it's so recognizable and remarkable and enduring and clearly loved by generations of Disney fans. And while we looked at not only his accomplishments, we talked about some of his never-built theme park concepts like Thunder Mesa and some tributes to Mark you can find in the parks. But what you may not know 
is that there's also a great deal of hidden history at Disney. Ideas and stories and even people that you may have not have heard of before, which is why I like to highlight so many of them on interviews on the show. And so this week, I want you to saddle up because we're going to look at a truly fun concept that you probably have never even heard of before and or its connections to an attraction that might just be one of your favorites. And when I say we, we means, of course, Kendall Foreman, who you may have heard on the show. I I can't even read all the shows you've been on, Kendall, because there are so many going back to Tomorrowland, art pieces, unrealized attractions, things you can't believe happened, Wayback Machines, Beastly Kingdom, and so many more. Kendall, welcome back to the show. Hey, I'm glad to be back and really excited to talk about this topic. And this was, I have to give credit where it's due, Kendall, because this topic was all yours. And you said to me, hey, because we were talking about maybe doing a Mark Davis show. And I says, well, I already, I did a full show on Mark Davis. And he said, and you came back and said, yeah, but you never really talked about the fun house at Fort Wilderness. And fortunately, as you, I was reading the email or the message, you couldn't see my face because it was the what fun house in Fort Wilderness. It literally opened up this wonderful Pandora Pandora's box. Of course, it was also an expensive Pandora's box because you said you don't have the Mark Davis in his own words, imagining the Disney theme parks book. While we were literally on a call, I ordered it and it changed my life forever. Yeah, this is a fantastic two volume tome. And I have to send a shout out to uh, the WW Radio Clubhouse members because without them, I would not have sprung for the, the full price sight unseen. But thanks to them, I got it. Uh, on a great deal as a birthday present to myself um, a couple of years ago, not long after it came out. And, and after purchasing it, now I can say I would have paid, I, I should have paid the full price for it because it's a fantastic research material, fun dive, great geek out moment for any Disney fan. And just whether it's small little details in attraction in an attraction, or it's, giving you details on attractions that we thought we knew everything about or something like today where you get introduced to something you've never heard of. It's just a great piece of work from Pete Doctor and Christopher Merritt. And let's be clear. Well, first of all, it, it is not the cheapest book on Amazon, but it you said it's two volumes. It's nearly 800 pages, hardcover, full color. It is beautiful and it is a treasure trove, not just of Mark Davis and his work, but of the history of the Disney parks around the world. And it is, it is, it instantly became one of my favorite books in, in my library. And I was fascinated as I turned to a page in the 600s, because like I said, it's huge. And we were, and I was introduced for the first time to this concept of a Fort Wilderness funhouse. And, you know, as I'm flipping through the book and I get to these pictures and, and the concept art that's in here, is gorgeous. Uh, I, I thought back to uh, one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had was being able to go and interview Alice Davis, who was Mark's husband, and go and meet with her and chat with her in her home. I, I won't go on to my sort of nerdy love of that experience, but being able to see Mark's hand-drawn work and like yikes like sit in his chair and the sat in the chair that Walt sat in 
in his office and in his studio was remarkable. And I think sometimes we almost forget just what an impact this one man had specifically on the theme park experience and just how much he contributed over the years. Yeah, it's just unbelievable to look through this thing. And I I am so jealous of your opportunities to get to sit there and see pieces of original artwork. Because, I mean, as a somewhat amateur freelance artist myself, I am just astounded at his ability to to what looks like just rip these things off. I mean, there's just piece after piece after piece of such such a prolific amount of artwork at such a high level and characters that are created and just his personal style you see throughout all of it. You look at a piece of concept art and you know immediately that's Mark Davis. Yeah, and we'll touch on, you know, I sort of teased a little bit and I will continue the tease of not just this unique concept that was sort of never realized in its original form, but its ties to a a current attraction that has Mark Davis's handprints all over it, and not just its connections to it, but some of the ideas that were originally planned for it, and some might even say there's a lot of connective tissue that runs in between. But I think we need to sort of you know, enter the dream sequence here and go back in time a little bit to the early mid 1970s and the opening of Walt Disney World and specifically Fort Wilderness and what Fort Wilderness and and Walt Disney World itself, what it was and what it was starting to go down the path of becoming in terms of Walt Disney World being this vacation kingdom of the world. Yeah, I love the concept of the vacation kingdom. Um, I covered that in my my anniversary series, you know, the influencer of the decade. I picked the the concept of the vacation kingdom as the most impactful thing that happened at Disney World in the 1970s. Because it's interesting to think about, and anyone who watched the behind the attraction about the Disneyland Hotel, there was just an, a really interesting statement made in there for for someone you know my age or younger or even just a little bit older than me, the idea of a family vacation, first off, isn't a novel concept for one. And we travel long distances and we stay in hotels and we do activities around that hotel. And that's what we know of family vacation. But they mentioned in that Disneyland hotel episode how they had to market the Disneyland hotel in a certain way because up to that point, hotels were solely for business travelers. This wasn't something that families did. And as a part of that, they started incorporating all kinds of things into the Disneyland hotel. They wanted it to be a one-stop shop for everything. And then once you get to Walt Disney World, that concept expands out, not just to that specific hotel, but this property where we we want to keep you here we want to offer you everything that we can so that you'll want to stay for multiple days bring the whole family and you'll want to come back and do this again and i think you see especially after a couple years of it being open that some people were starting to come in and, and they might stay for one night because there's one park to do something and then they move on and i think with what they were trying to do with these proposed projects that we're going to talk about today is they wanted 
to expand that. They want people to realize there's this whole vacation kingdom here. There's all this recreation, especially at the campground that we want you to come. We want you to stay. We want you to try all these different things because the more you're in our hotels, the better it is for us. <laughs> right. And, and like you said, there was only one park. Was Magic Kingdom, obviously, certainly not as developed now in terms of the numbers of attractions and things to keep you in the parks, which is why the resorts were so important. It's why there were things like the Polynesian Luau and the Top of the World Supper Club, which were destination venues at the resorts to give you something to do at night. And what Disney was was seeing, and, and I think the vision from the very beginning was to add some more of those off-the-beaten-path type experiences to not just you going to the parks and then coming back to resort to sleep and then eat. It's why things like, you know, Discovery Island were built. And even going back to months after Walt Disney World had first opened, there were plans to add to Fort Wilderness. Uh, In the northern section, they were going to add the settlement with a beach and a petting zoo and a boat dock they wanted to have and eventually did have this narrow gauge steam railroad with open air cars that were going to transport guests through this loop of track between the campsites and the reception and recreation areas. They were going to have this Fort Wilderness stockade and a Western town complete with dining and shopping and entertainment. So more than just Pioneer Hall and hoop de doo they really wanted to build and eventually did with, like I said, Treasure Island, Discovery Island, uh, River Country opens in 1975. But there were there were other plans for a frontier town where it wasn't just a place for guests of Fort Wilderness to have something to do, but they specifically wanted to build this to make you extend your vacation, right? Now we can go for seven days and not see anything. Like you said, you can go for one or two, see it all, and then move on maybe to another up-and-coming destination in Florida. So to create this town and this recreational concept uh, complex, it would give you a reason to stay and add an extra day. And while they're continuing to improve on Fort Wilderness and then, you know, in, in the mid-70s, around 76, as the oil crisis is over and tourism is really starting to kick up, this is when they really start to ramp up some of these ideas. And Mark Davis steps into the picture and says, one thing that we maybe can do here is build, really, for lack of a better word, it's the only way to best describe it, is a funhouse in Fort Wilderness. Yeah, and I think, they, they had an initial concept of kind of this, the Fort Wilderness Funhouse looking like a barn and being more of just a straightforward funhouse, like what you see at a, you know, a typical county fair. I'm sure it would have been more elevated than that because it would have been a permanent structure. Um, and, and you see Mark did a, con- a concept piece for that of the red barn, but then you really start to see Mark come into the picture, like you said, in, in late 75, 76 where they start to flesh this out as as a broader concept with more of a story. Yeah, and it's interesting how this comes to be and where those ties are to, again, I, I alluded to no, I, no good idea Walt Disney World ever dies, 
And the attraction that I was so cryptically referring to was, and the ties that it connects to, was going back and looking at some of the original plans for a walkthrough attraction of the Haunted Mansion. And the concept that they first came up with was something called the Roost. And again, in this book, there's a a fully flushed out drawing by Mark of, like you said, this barn which was going to be sort of, you know, this this hillbilly type hotel. And, and what I love about this, Kendall, is how even early on they had crafted and Mark had sort of designed these characters, right? So uh, Jasper and Maud were going to um, create this place to escape some of the, 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 the critters of Fort Wilderness. They were former chicken farmers and they had this, bizarre idea of creating this giant red barn which according to the the concept art was going to be sort of like this indoor tom sawyer island which based on what we saw initially even just from those initial concepts of the barn was exactly what this was going to be a place that you entered into and it was going to have all of these different literal and figurative paths and adventures you could go on. Yeah. And, and when you look at the book, even sometimes it's kind of hard to judge where certain pieces of concept art fit in together with others. And, and you can tell this is definitely an evolving project. Um, you see, you know, the, the barn is the first concept and then the, then the barn, while they're talking about this hotel idea and the roost and it kind of transitions into, okay, now it's no longer a barn. Now it looks more like, uh, of if you took a Victorian house or even, you know, to use a modern example, if you took mystic manor and built it in the American Midwest, you know, this house has kind of all these towers and turrets and tons of chicken weather vanes on top and almost like it's a big house that's been turned into a hotel and there's two separate entry points that you see in the book two different concept art pieces at least this is what to me it seems like when you look at it is that there was one one version where you enter into the hotel and Maud and Jasper look to be Pepper's ghost type effects where they're above the registration desk and they're welcoming you in and introducing you to their hotel. And then there's a cast member down on the main floor. And, and then there's another piece of concept art that looks like it may be the entry point because there's also a cast member there. And Mark has specific notes on that piece where there's multiple chickens in the room laying eggs. And each time they lay an egg, it makes a bell ring. And once the bell's rung three times, then this portrait on the wall comes to life of Jasper and Maud. And, and that kind of served as the pre-show. And it's sort of, it's by sort that of weird. point, sorry, I was sorry. Cause it's sort of weird when you look at, the exterior concept art, right? And you have this gigantic house, this, this this mansion, which is, you know, somewhat reminiscent of what could easily be a haunted mansion. To me, it looks a lot mm-hmm. like, um, the, like the Winchester Mystery Mansion. It's, as the concept art calls it, it's this rustic Victorian. And yet you see these odd, I mean, there's there's a multitude of, chicken weather vane so this this carrying over of 
the chicken roost concept is is somewhat disjointed with this, but you can see they want to at least carry over some of those elements of the story. And I, I think this this exterior concept art of this upscale wilderness hotel is so intriguing because it it's such it's such a weird mishmash of different types of eccentric architecture all sort of mm-hmm. blended into each other. You know, there's a little bit of Haunted Mansion, there's a little bit of Grizzly Hall, there's a little bit of Victorian Manor all sort of melded in together. Yeah, and and clearly when you see it's like the chickens have taken over. I mean, the, the, the chickens are on the weather vanes, the chickens are in the architecture, the chickens are on the fence, you know, depicted in all those different ways. And then the, the, the chickens are allowed to live inside the hotel. Like Maud must have really loved her chickens. <laughs> <laughs> and and like, again, going, going back to the characters of Jasper and Maud, again, they were sort of really kind of fully flushed out. So there was a a reason and, a, and an understanding and a, and a method behind the madness of the design. So even just, you know, Jasper is this very small, skinny, meek and mild-mannered tinkerer who's sort of the inventor of the hotel. And Maud is a larger, stronger presence um, who, you know, clearly loves her chickens and is like, listen, Jasper, you're going to live with me. You're also going to live with with me and my chickens as well. Yeah, I get a very, uh, like, Kermit Miss Piggy vibe from Jasper and Maude. <laughs> <That's great>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's, and there's yeah. this, you, you sort of get the sense, as, as much of what Mark did and what we even see in places currently like Frontierland, there is this... Um, sort of fanciful basis in like American folklore, right? Not based on any specific characters, but or sort of like these folk stories and a lot of this folk folksiness of Americana that is brought into um that that is brought into the story and the theming, not just on the outside, but as you mentioned on the inside as well. And the incredible th- somewhat disjointed and disparate theming of each of the rooms. And you sort of get the sense that these two people tried to build their best version of an upscale, elegant hotel. Maybe not 100% quite right, but certainly with a lot of the Jasper and Maud flair uh, layered on top. Yeah, I mean, it has like all of the components of a great mansion, but it incorporates that Mark Davis playfulness and sight gags. I mean, like one of the the best examples of that combination, I think, is the image you see of the trophy room (laughs) where not trophies as in sports trophies, but trophies as in hunting trophies. And, you know, in a great mansion, you would expect the man of the house to have you know, at that point in time in history, a great trophy room with, you know, bucks or, you know, or elk or whatever on the wall. But in this hotel mansion, it's, 
you know, a, a unicorn and a shark and a walrus and tiger the rooster. So I'm, I'm not sure maybe how Maude feels about that one <laughs> being mounted on Jasper's trophy room wall. But and they're all given just, names too, like each one. Which, yeah. So they're all not just sort of trophies, but and this is sort of weird, like they are they are characters who had clearly personalities of their own and and you know they're like there's mojave a, a camel and there's hot lips a dragon like breathing fire yeah. and there's a unicorn so they're real and somewhat mythical and you almost don't know you know that's why they're called unlikely trophies for the trophy room yeah and it almost makes you what like i i really hope that these things are going to be like animatronics that spoke <laughs> you know and not just hanging on the wall but yeah, I mean, you take, and again, like another example of something being elevated and yet just like still a little bit of hillbilly is, you know, Maud's dining room. You have this, you know, fancy table set and fancy lights. And, and then you have this kind of Victorian grating hanging from the ceiling that serves as a track for buckets and the buckets are delivering food to the dining room. And then there's a train track delivering food to the dining table. And obviously this isn't a place where guests were supposed to come in and eat. This whole thing's a walk through, you know, attraction, but just that, you know, that juxtaposition of something fancy, fancy mansion with these gags and, and silly hillbilly ways of doing things. Right. And that's, and sort of give you, you know, as you're listening, you have to sort of visualize in your mind's eye. And again, I, I refer to the book because the concept art really helps piece it together. But you really are, once you're through that pre-show, you go through this, you know, it's it's like a funhouse, but this interactive walkthrough attraction. And there are these multiple rooms, I'm sure, you know, each one kind of came and went. So in the kitchen is sort of that when you see the concept art of the kitchen and it's all sort of on this gigantic slant, you think of sort of that angled funhouse room, right? Where the the eggs are rolling in the wrong direction and the, there's, you know, chairs that sort of shouldn't be where they should be. There's a barrel room with barrel tops that are spinning on the floors and teetering barrels on the walls. You can sort of imagine that Mark Davis world of motion type scene that's there with the, it, this is, a drunken chicken that is singing again, this American folklore. There's like a Paul Bunyan bedroom that has this gigantic bounce mattress. And there's Paul and, and babe, the ox uh, and the uh, paintings on the wall. Uh, one of the interesting things is this hall of, do of doors, which was, would utilize that Waythel Rogers projection screen, technology where you would walk down this hallway and again think sort of like the mansion's corridor of doors maybe and, and I and as I was reading this Kendall and sort of trying to connect the two I, I envisioned this hall of doors that you would walk through and I started to think of the inspiration from the haunted mansion and as we go through the mansion now and we see all those doors after we pass uh, the coffin you wonder if this is what the original concept for the walkthrough mansion might have been, where as you were walking down this hallway, all these different doors would open up 
into all of these different types of gags. So if you wanted, if you open the door that had the exit on it, you would open up to a, a this dark room with think Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, like a train coming at you, or the Florida room would have all kinds of rain and thunder. The the restroom just had this single chair for you to go to rest into. So it's a more humorous take on what might have been the original mansion corridor of doors concept. Yeah, I mean, you think there has to be some connective tissue there between the two, like what you mentioned, just just by virtue of the fact that there are several of the same Imagineers working, you know, on this concept broadly, and then Mark Davis working on the actual art design specifically. And I think it's very interesting to look at some of those some of those more fun housey concepts that were a part of the roost versus some of the more even, you know, fleshed out interactive concepts that once it, it becomes the adventure house, because you take like that, the concept of the mods kitchen in this angled room. And I, from what I understand, I believe that was more part of the roost versus then you take an angled room um, in the adventure house and they've turned that into Jasper's den and so you still have this idea of things rolling uphill because now it's Jasper's billiard table and the balls are rolling up the hill and, and there's still chickens living in the den, <laughs> but then you've also added this large fish tank in, in there. And it, Mark really wanted to use a, a rear projection in order to make it look like there was a shark in the tank. And just how ahead of his time, really, kind of that was that, you know, we, we come all the way to, I don't remember the year that Finding Nemo uh, mm-hmm. and Nemo and Friends opened at the seas. But, you know, to get to a point where we have like a fully realized version of that tech, that visual interactivity that Mark wanted to use in this funhouse. Well, and I think I think that's the distinction right there. Right? I think the roost was more funhouse than like the mansion, right? It was the idea was this was going to be something that really would appeal to kids. And if you look at some of the other specific rooms that were at, at least proposed for the the roost, so for example, Windwagon Smith's nautical quarter, which was this circular room that had windows looking out onto what would eventually become Frontierland with all these interactive cranks that would spin and rotate the weather vanes on the outside of the house, which is why I think we saw so many of those chicken weather vanes out there. Uh, There was a concept for a a guest room, which you would open up the door and there'd be this huge sleeping bear inside and the bear is snoring so loudly that it's making the room itself have this sort of effect that it's breathing. So think almost the movement of the ceiling in the stretching room, but expanded to making that whole room, because he's snoring so loudly, expand and contract. Uh, There was a mirror maze, a a dark maze, an entirely touch-based maze that's, you know, I don't think necessarily in, in practical terms could have happened. Uh, There was a perspective hallway, which makes me think of the endless hallway again in the mansion, but something that you would encounter 
as a walkthrough. There was an earthquake room, a do-si-do balcony. Again, think about that shaking floor at the exterior of some fun houses you'll find at carnivals. There was a prairie schooner hall. Jasper's attic would have a self-playing piano. Uh, again, inspiration coming not just from Mark Davis, but you know Ken Anderson and, and Claude Coates' variations on this self-playing piano that we eventually see in the Haunted Mansion. Uh, a headless horseman was going to throw his head at visitors at the end of a hallway. Again, going back to inspiration from early Ken Anderson's drawings. And there's a there's a cool greenhouse drawing in the book that has man-eating plants. And again, if you think back to Roly Crump's idea for a museum of the weird, that's exactly what he wanted. It never happened. Mark Davis took that idea, said, we're going to get this man-eating plant. We're not going to put it in the mansion. We're not going to put it here. He wanted to put it in the Jungle Cruise here in Walt Disney World. It obviously didn't happen. But I think all of these ideas, again, were meant, it made me feel more almost carnival funhouse. And I think with it came inherent problems, whether it be guest flow through, safety, execution, what it might be. But that original roost concept eventually starts to morph into this adventure house and the the levels of interactivity and, and what you would have been able to do and or affect or change would be different. I think the adventure house was more of a passive experience as opposed to the initial idea of the roost being something far more interactive. Yeah, definitely interactive on, like you say, like more of a physical experience. Like you're thinking of those things, like you mentioned, like the spinning floor and, and a bounce floor and, and some of those carry over. Like I mentioned, you know, the difference between, you know, the angled kitchen and Jasper's den, both being an angle floor room. And, and instead of having like, you know, a bounce floor room, now you take that conservatory concept that you mentioned, but then they convert it uh, like in a slight riff on a bounce room, it has like a squishy floor mm. and they, they're going to put, they're going to, you know, bring fog in over the floor with these man eating plants on either side of you. And now it turns into this eerie walkthrough area and something that's a little less um, litigation causing than putting a bunch of guests <laughs> in a room where they're bouncing around. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that, that's the thing. I think there was always, this recurring idea for a walkthrough attraction, right? Going back to the, you know, the Haunted Mansion was time and time again, again, pre-opening at Disneyland, you know, Rolly Crump and Yale Gracie all sort of had this idea and storyline. You know, we eventually got the sea captain uh, integrated into the, in, into the Walt Disney World version specifically when it did its refurb a number of years ago. But, you know, Mark Davis really had also conceptualized so many different walkthrough versions of a haunted mansion and gags that he developed for that, as well as for Tom Sawyer Island, that never came to be, but again, had to sort of morph even further as this interactive walkthrough became what eventually would be called and considered the Adventure House. Yeah, and one of the 
the pieces of concept art that to me looks like something that definitely could come right out of the haunted mansion or would or could fit right in there today that's that was part of the adventure house iteration is jasper's photographic studio and it it looks like you know a long tunnel through this room and there's cameras set up on either side that flash which you know maybe knowing what we do today about health limitations this might not be the best thing to implement but it is a, a fascinating concept that it you know if you're walking through and it flashes on the right then on your left you would see these silhouettes of like ghosts and ghouls and skeletons and things like almost like the flash captured that silhouette on the wall and then it starts to fade away and then that side would flash and then those similar type of apparition appearances would occur on the opposite wall as you walk through. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to sort of try and follow and, and to a certain degree, Kendall almost have to piece together what the flow of these rooms were in the adventure house. So one of the concept art pieces that, that I love is of this waiting area that again has this recurring theme of the, the, hens and the roosters and I, I couldn't quite understand like the, there would be hens in there and every time they laid an egg it would drop into a basket a bell would ring I'm having visions of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and when one of them played three eggs the bell would start to ring rapidly and there was this portrait of Maud and Jasper that would come to life but if you look at the notation off to the side you see guests sitting on these benches that were meant to sink or expand, sort of grow and shrink, which made me think about, um, uh, if you remember back when the Adventurers Club opened and the stools at the bar that would go up and down, much to the surprise of guests, there was no sort of signage on there. It's sort of that reintegration of that similar type of gag or joke that clearly Davis was a fan of. Yeah, and I, even today, I just, I love some of the relative simplicity of some of these things, but the the freeness of it, like, it's kind of shocking to me that we don't really have any walkthrough attractions like this at Walt Disney World, and especially considering how popular they seem to be in a lot of the international parks. Mm -hmm. Like, I I think you could very much take these concepts and and use this today to create something. You know, even if you elevate it with today's tech, whether that's you know things that we've seen like the the magic mirror in Enchanted Tales with Belle, or you know some of the animatronic technology that we have now, some of the projection mapping technology that we see in places like the Peter Pan's Flight Queue. Like, you know, and, and maybe it's because of concepts art like this attraction that we have some of those things today, but it, it definitely seems like this is a concept that could be fleshed out and spectacular. Yeah. And, you know, as we, uh, when we come to sort of the, the end of our discussion and sort of think about what could happen potentially with some of these ideas for the future, I was thinking about places like Hong Kong Disneyland, which during Halloween is an amazing place. And the walkthrough attractions 
that they have there that are not only interactive, they're downright scary. Uh, Go back and listen to our review of uh, our trip to Hong Kong Disneyland, but they work, right? They work in there. It's a temporary environment. I mean, it's sort of a temporary structure created specifically for this. They also had uh, an Avengers theme one, which was a very temporary sort of test pilot for this walkthrough experience, which works very well there. And as I think back to those and I look at the concept art here, the theming is different, the gags are different, but a lot of what, a lot of the specificity I think that Davis and some of the other Imagineers put in was utilized and integrated today. So for example, in between scenes, there were short hallways to each of the different rooms that wildly varied from being short and simple to incredibly well-themed. They're soundproofed, so you don't know what is coming around the next corner, what that next room might have in store for you. And it's this weird sort of abstract connection between sometimes these rooms, which might not necessarily make sense, right? If this was a, a real hotel, but was fascinating when you see them all kind of put together. And again, this this taking some of these old carnival concepts, making them less funhouse and more of a passive perspective view type experience. And again, we are trying to sort of piece together. We don't know what order these rooms would have been, but as you look at the cart, the the concept art, and as you read the the descriptions, you can see where some of these concepts certainly carried over, not to the walkthrough version of the mansion, but the current version that we have, whether it is the stretching room, the disappearing portraits, some of the other um, aspects as well, some of these, these appearing and disappearing. And I love the way that you sort of get the sense that, again, you're you're guided. It looks like from the concept art that there's almost like a butler in gray pants, bow tie, and red vest that is guiding you through, which, again, I wonder just sort of logistically how that might happen. But this idea of coming around the corner, much as you do when you enter Magic Kingdom, and there's this reveal of a room, and there's this reveal of these gags around you. And instead of experiencing them via doom buggy, you're experiencing them by walking through. And you wonder just again, logistically, like when you get to this, this mirror maze, right? We've all been to fun houses where characters are appearing and disappearing. You're sort of finding your way through how that might work for a concept like this. It might work through, in some place like a funhouse maze at, at a carnival or a special themed event, I don't know that it would necessarily work in what would I have to imagine to be a a permanent attraction that's not necessarily obviously in, in a park, but is meant to be a destination. And you start to wonder like why why didn't this happen? Right? Why did this attraction never come to be? I think, Kendall, it's probably less the execution of the effects because, you know, a lot of these concept arts were also 
mocked up in 3D. You know, Mark Davis, Albertino set up some of these little, um, uh, you know, test pilot rooms just to see, you know, what the effect would really be like. And so you wonder if Adventure House seemed to have had the support, not just from the Imagineers, but from up above in terms of we need to make this place be a destination. Why does Adventure House not happen over at Fort Wilderness? Yeah, and as I said earlier, like I think you you can look at these and say, this would be a fascinating place to visit, you know, walk through attractions, work other places, but you do make a great point of, as you're trying to progress through this, if you're not being led by a cast member, then do you have people, you know, stopping and lingering? And then what kind of, you know, guest flow do you have? And if you do have a cast member leading you through it, then, you know, are you getting to experience it really in the, in the way, you know, like in this exploratory manner that it seems like it's, it's supposed to be enjoyed. And I definitely agree with you that I'm sure, you know, obviously we had other attractions that, the initial concepts were walkthroughs and that didn't happen. And in, in this case, that probably most likely was a concern yet again. And I'm, sh- I'm sure as we, as we talk about the other concept that we're going to focus on next in conjunction with this one, I think there were some other things just in the timeline of Walt Disney world that factored into why this did not become a thing. Right. And I like, I was asking myself, could this concept work today in Walt Disney World? And I think the answer is yes. And I think the the location is in a place like a resort. I actually think Fort Wilderness might be the ideal place for it because if it's in a park, it becomes another attraction. You have the the, the issue of too many guests, whereas if something like this exists at one of the resorts, you don't have necessarily the theme park size crowds being able to do it. You can theme it appropriately. You could make the resort continue to be even more of a destination as I think many of them are. I think this is an extension and an expansion of it. I think it probably would have to be an add-on ticket to something. So it's not just this absolute free-for-all and then the, the resorts start to be overrun with non-guests um it's something for resort guests but obviously non-guests could go and do it as well so maybe there's a a relatively de minimis cost for doing it um it's something I, i would be really interesting to see them almost try the way they did out in um hong kong in terms of this walkthrough attraction and i and i will tell you that I, I don't, I'm not a camper, nor do I play one on TV. I've, I've always dreamed, like if I'm going to camp anywhere, it's going to be at Fort Wilderness, but I do love the fort. Uh, I love the cabins there. I obviously love Hoopty Doo. Trails End is one of the best restaurants and values on property. I need to do a live review soon, but you start to think of what Fort Wilderness could have been had this frontier town been built. And you alluded to, this was not the only concept that was going to be added and i don't just mean you know water park and things like that but again something i had never heard of before was sadie mays 
Yeah, this was a total surprise when I opened this book. And through some internet sleuthing, um, you're not going to find much. There's not much to be found about Sadie Mays. And if you go digging, you will find a Sadie Mays Disney connection. When you look up Sadie Mays is spelled S-A-D-I-E and then Sadie and then M-A-E. Um, but it is not this dining entertainment location specifically. It's speaking of the orchestron or the band organ that was supposed to be a part of this location. And in the Mark Davis book, it mentions that Bob Yanni, who at that point in time was the director of entertainment for Disney Parks, that he uh, acquired a whole set of of mechanical instruments. And one of them was this large apparatus called Sadie May. And I'm, I, I'm really excited because I think I might have a piece of trivia that you don't know. Do you know where Sadie May played a role in Disney parks history prior to this concept? I'm resisting the urge to press pause. So where Sadie May had a connection <laughs> to Walt yes. Disney World specifically? Not Walt Disney World. I'll give you a clue. It was Disneyland. Is it America Sings? Is it something with America Sings? You, you, are, you are very close with the America concept. Sadie May was used to record the soundtrack for America on Parade, for the Bicentennial Parade that was done at Disneyland. And this, I, I have to go on a side tangent because this is just fascinating <laughs> to me. I love the, how excited this, you this, are. I, like, I have this huge smile yeah. on my face. This piece of equipment was from 1890, and it was restored by a man named Paul Eakes, who lived in Missouri, and he had several of these things. And so one of the other ones that he had was Big Big Bertha, which today you can see Big Bertha in the wall mm-hmm. at 1900 Park Fair at the Grand Floridian. So at this point in time, Paul Eakes, or Eakins, Eakes, um, Eakins, he owned Big Bertha and Sadie May, and he restored Sadie May until it could play. And the individuals working on the music for uh, America on Parade, they wanted it to have a, a music, an American music box type sound. And so they decided we're going to get this music to play on Sadie May, and then we're going to combine it with a Moog synthesizer so that it has this like music box, Main Street electrical parade type sound. Mm. But Sadie Mae was huge, so they couldn't transport this thing to L.A. to record the music. So they moved it from Missouri just to the Grand Old Opry House in Nashville. So they traveled there, recorded the music on Sadie Mae, which actually is run, think like a player piano, only it uses like a like cardboard punch sheets. And at that point in time, there was only one guy who made these things. So they had to send the music orchestration to Belgium. So this guy could make them the punch sheets for Sadie May. They record it in Nashville and bring that music back to L.A. and mix it with the Moog synthesizer that then is used for Disneyland on Parade. At some point after that, according to the Mark Davis book, Bob Yanni acquired Sadie May then. And they were going to put this 
big orchestral band organ, which includes drums and pipes and cymbals and was able to mimic the sounds of trumpets and violins and flutes. And this was going to be on the main stage at Sadie Mays at Fort Wilderness as part of this overall show that they were going to perform there. Wow. Like, I, yeah, I never knew any of that uh, in terms of the 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 provenance of of Sadie May, but I think what's really what what's fascinating about this is, you know, and this goes back to to Dick Nunes, right? Dick Nunes wanted this frontier town at Walt, Fort Wilderness, and he wanted the, the place to be called Sadie May's Palace, right? And next door he was going to have this Granny Kincaid's farm where kids were going to pet animals and and run in the hay and sort of, you know. Which is not just, which is also sort of an, obviously an homage to Walt, right? And his Walt of not just of, of things like railroads, but his love of miniatures. And we know about Granny Kincaid's cabin, um, which you can now find at Walt Disney Presents over at Disney's Hollywood Studios. But Sadie Mae's Palace, the sense I get from the concept art is almost a more elegant upscale version of what... Um, of what we have, or at least what we had in Frontierland, in terms of the this this sort of Missouri-style show palace, where you would not only have this orchestrion, but live actors, live performing performers, audio animatronic animals, right, sort of copies of things from like America Sings and Country Bear Jamborees, but it also would have been this combination of theatrical experience and dining experience the concept art looks like there are you know there's a a bar around the outside so i i don't get the sense that it's a place you would go and sit down for a show but like we have in frontierland it was a place to go where a sort of a show was going on throughout the day or multiple multiple times throughout the day around you using animatronics and live actors with Sadie May sort of being, you know, at the at the literally the forefront and center stage. Yeah, and some of the mechanics of this place, just according to, you know, some of the notes that Mark Davis has are really interesting too, because it has those side boxes, like what you see at Country Bears, but instead of them rotating, they it actually was like an elevator system behind the curtain so you would have three separate audio animatronic vignettes and you would have an open space at the bottom those three vignettes and then an open space at the top so that you could use like an elevator system to shift which one was in the box so curtain closes one moves into place opens and inter- and, and these animatronics would have interacted directly timed with the cast members which i also think is an interesting idea as well and then you know they finish their scene curtain closes and then behind the scenes it's able to shift up or down so that with the four boxes they would have been able to have 12 different acts yeah and i wonder if it was going to be like uh again frontierland in the 70s where you would need to remember you're not gonna remember (laughs) you'd have to go (laughs) to main street usa and get a ticket for one of the shows that was going to be performed throughout the day. So there was sort of a a cycle of shows that was almost like a seating, but without actually seating. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely, it definitely seems like this would have been something that would have been ticketed just because at that time, like in the annual reports, you see references to this idea of developing a, a ticket book for Fort Wilderness that would have included river country and the railroad and adventure house and, and most likely Sadie Mays as well. So this almost sounds like, and maybe I'm imagining this wrong. It almost sounds like a unique version of the diamond horseshoe or the, you know, Disneyland's golden horseshoe, but specifically built around and for Sadie May. And again, to make Fort Wilderness become a destination resort. Yeah, definitely. And I, I can't help, but combine Sadie Mays with Adventure House and think along the lines of what they had planned to build in Mineral King. Mm-hmm. This concept of, uh, you know, a resort in and of itself with this, you know, an attraction or two. And like earlier, like you said, you know, making Fort Wilderness a destination. But I, I also just can't help to think, could this have, even today, could you take ideas like this and come up with a separate location somewhere else entirely? You know, well, and, then, and that's probably wishful thinking on my part. But dust them off and and find some other place in the country to put Sadie Mays and Adventure House and a resort. And well, I wonder, right? Let's sort of go back to another show that we did together, talking about the unrealized resorts and the Disney decade. Go back to the early '90s when Nunes they actually announced Buffalo Junction. It was later called. Um, Fort Wilderness it was it was Buffalo Junction then I think Fort Wilderness Junction and then just Wilderness Junction they were going to build this 600 room hotel in between Fort Wilderness and Wilderness Lodge I think this was part of the plan not just to add hotel rooms but also to add a, a themed sort of a cohesive themed destination Ken would have something like Sadie Mays, probably not Adventure House, but would something like Sadie Mays have fit in perfectly there? I think so, right? Because now all of a sudden having these three resorts and this literal physical connection between all three makes it sort of this, you know, wilderness type boardwalk, not just resort area, but dining and entertainment area as well. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, you mentioned that in the nineties of like what the original plans were for the boardwalk was to have a lot more attraction component there than even than what there is today. Right. Cause weren't they going to have their own version or maybe even just a, uh, an exact replica of the Buffalo bill, the, the wild West show from Disneyland Paris was going to be there too. Like it was really going to be this themed, you know, old West, you know, sawdust street type of I don't, I don't want to call it a hotel because it really is a destination yeah and looking at it you know from that viewpoint like you think about today like and, and even at this point pioneer hall is there they've they've built pioneer hall it has opened they are running the hoopty Doo review show so how many people do you have coming to the campground to watch hoopty Doo? which actually now that i say that i can i can 
tell you because it was in one of the annual reports it they, they actually said they had twice as many people coming to the campground from the other resorts to see hoopty do as what were staying at the campground but even with those numbers it does make me wonder like would you have been able to sustain both of those in the same location like with only those you know at that point in time it's only the polynesian the contemporary the golf resort and the campground but if you fast forward to the 90s or today and you have a resort there i think you could sustain something mm -hmm. like this i mean because clearly it, getting into spirit of aloha or getting into hoopty to hoopty do review was a pretty tough reservation for a long time sure. No, I absolutely think something like Sadie Mays would not only work, I think it would be welcome. I think it would be ridiculously popular, especially if and when they ever do build this third of the wilderness resorts. And I honestly, Kendall, I think something like an adventure house, not necessarily as it was specifically laid out, but I think a version and variation of it could work too, because relatively speaking, it is a simpler concept to execute. Why? It is less reliant on, and I'm not saying this is a good or a bad thing, and just in terms of the the probability of something like this happening, it's a self-sustaining attraction where the only cast members that you would need would be the hosts and the guides walking through it, as opposed to Sadie Mays. And look, I love live entertainment. I would love to see this. There's obviously a lot more that goes into it in terms of entertainment in terms of server it also means that there's a higher potential of revenue generation from it so it does necessarily possibly become even more attractive as something to do because there is less of a mechanical technology that has to be built so you can argue easily for one or for both yeah and looking at you know like you say with adventure house in in today's world, if you take a concept like that and add, you know, the Instagram component, mm -hmm. you know, the the social media component, because you see the popularity of things. And, and obviously, this is a very, a very different concept. But like you see the popularity of places like Meow Wolf or the Museum of Ice Cream that, you know, their their walks, they're, they're relatively simple in in execution and but people love them mm -hmm. i mean definitely both hard tickets to get i mean i think when museum of ice cream op opened i think that was like a sellout for the first year that it was open so there are ways even to today today with as simple of a design as some of these things were to make them relevant and I think you're right. And I think sort of utilizing the examples that, that you mentioned, I think we as guests, we as consumers want things that are, we've shifted from 1955 perspectives in a, in a lot of ways, but in terms of from an entertainment perspective, we don't, aren't necessarily just satisfied getting into a vehicle and being shown what the quote unquote directors want you to see. We want to have some sort of interactive element to it. We want some sort of say. We want some sort of participatory type of thing. You wonder if 
something like this low slash high tech walkthrough attraction might satisfy something like that. It's not something that is scary. It is something that remains family friendly. If it is hosted and walkthrough, you can obviate the clearly easy problem of guest flow, guest accessibility, etc. I think it could work. I think it could be something that would be unique and incredibly popular as well. And something people would be willing to pay for. Yeah. And I think, you know, with all that in mind, then the question becomes like, why, why didn't, why why didn't this happen? Was it just, you know, wrong place, wrong time? Maybe, you know, the, the walkthrough wasn't the, the best concept for that time. But I think the, the biggest reason why this didn't become a thing is is the fact that at the end of the 70s you can see you look at annual reports from 76 77 78 right when this is these concepts are coming about those annual reports are dominated by nothing but epcot Mm -hmm. it was all hands on deck for epcot and and i don't you know i i don't have personal information for you know firsthand primary source information on this, but you have to think that all attention went there and everything else that wasn't already in progress got pushed to the side. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, But the hope is that, like we said, no good idea ever dies. I mean, we talked, again, we talked back on show 632 about some of the unrealized Walt Disney World attractions, specifically of the Disney decade. But Kendall, there is obviously a lot more, I just made up the term, hidden history in terms of concepts that we almost got and who knows, we might still get. And that's a gentle tease towards inviting you back to do this again. I'm not sure if we ever talked about the unrealized Oz attraction and some of the other things that even just we see in the Mark Davis uh, concept and sketchbook. Um, but it, it is always fun to, to not just look back, but also to look forward and speculate, not just what was, but what might be. Listen, I would, in a heartbeat, I would, you build this adventure house exactly as Davis conceptualized it, and I would be all in because this has everything that we love, specifically about Mark Davis the the wit and the whimsy and the fun um, that we that we don't necessarily get a chance to see. Um, so I would love to certainly do this again. I will post a link in the show notes, not just to other shows that we've done, but if you go to www.radio.com, go click on the little search icon to search for Kendall Foreman. Um, she has not only been with me on a number of shows, but is a prolific uh, blog writer as well. And oh, by the way, I have to just say it, your legment, Lego figment mosaic is just amazing. Thank you. That was It was a labor of love, and he is sitting in my office right now. And, and I really hope that there's, you know, listeners, readers out there who were encouraged to either, you know, make their own figment or come up with their own Lego mosaic designs from seeing those posts. And if people want to connect with you or follow you elsewhere on social, where can or should they go? Um, You can find me at KL underscore Foreman, F-O-R-E-M-A-N on Twitter. And then you'll also just find me interacting in the, on the clubhouse page on Facebook 
Um, and then obviously, as you mentioned, uh, I've got posts coming out fairly regularly on the WDW Radio blog. Awesome. Kendall, this was a great idea. A lot of fun. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history or see how well you pay attention to the details and what you see, hear, remember, maybe even taste. If you think you know the answer, you can enter for a chance to win a Disney prize package. And this week's trivia contest is once again brought to you by you, because as part of the WW Radio Nation family, you literally help bring every episode of WW Radio to life, every live broadcast, the contests and giveaways. They are all thanks to buy for and of course about you you can find out how you can help the show for as little as a dollar per month and get cool exclusive rewards every month like scavenger hunts trivia quests group video calls we have a private facebook group shirts stickers monthly care packages early access and discounts to special events and much more i sincerely appreciate the love friendship, support, and help. I want to thank some new and longtime members of the Nation family, including Ande J75, Paul Goodwin, Ken McGraw, and Susan Simpkins. Thank you so, so very much. If you want to find out how you can help the show and join the Nation, you can visit www.radio.com slash support. And don't forget that a portion of your contribution goes to our Dream Team project to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America Thanks to you, we've raised more than $550,000 for Make-A-Wish to send children with life-threatening illnesses and their families to Walt Disney World for a little bit of magic when they need it most. Okay, but before we get to this week's question, let's go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week, and with no context whatsoever, I asked you to tell me what was the Neverland Club and where can or could you find... Well, if I said was, it obviously was something in the past. And where could you once find it in Walt Disney World? Thanks to all of you who entered. Got this one correct. And knew that the Neverland Club was a children's care clubhouse over at Disney's Polynesian Village Resort. It replaced the original Mouseketeers Village Clubhouse. And then that closed in 2014 and reopened as Club Disney and was themed to Disney's Little Golden Books. In November of 2014, that closed as well, was completely rethemed, and now is known as Lilo's Playhouse. So if mom, dad, grandparents, anybody wants to go and spend an evening out in the parks or for a nice dinner, kids ages 3 to 12 can do crafts, play games, there's storytelling, movie nights, there's activity coordinators, it is a really cool, fun, obviously super safe place. Anyway, I took all the correct entries, randomly selected one, and last week you were once again playing for a WW Radio mystery prize package that includes, but is not limited to, a WW Radio pin and keychain, which you can only get as a contest prize, and a bonus mystery prize. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is Arthur Warner. So Arthur, congratulations. I'll get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win... That's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So we are talking about Fort Wilderness. Let's stay at Fort Wilderness. Tell me, what is the name of the beach at Fort Wilderness? What is the name of the... There's a beach. It's beautiful. What is the name of the beach at Disney's Fort Wilderness Resort 
and campground. You have until Sunday, May 8th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern to go to www.radio.com. Click on this week's podcast. Use the form there. Again, you're going to play for the pin, the keychain, and a bonus mystery prize. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. Please come be part of the community and conversation. And let me know, do you think the Adventure House or something like it would work today somewhere in Walt Disney World? You can let me know by going over to the WW Radio Clubhouse on Facebook at www.radio.com slash clubhouse. You can answer the question there. And there's lots of other great conversations going on. You can also connect with me elsewhere on social. I am at Lou Mangiello on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. You can call the voicemail with a question or let me know what you think about the Adventure House idea by calling 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. You can also email me, lou at www.radio.com with a question I'll answer on an upcoming show. Of course, as much as I love connecting with you online, nothing beats a handshake and a hug. Make sure you go check out our events page at www.radio.com slash events for all kinds of upcoming events. Lots going on in May. Stay tuned for more information about our meet of the month. Had a lot going on in May, including my Momentum Weekend Retreat coming up and other events. So there may be a weekday meet of the month, but stay tuned. Also look forward to my live broadcast from Megacon in Orlando. And if you're going to be at Megacon, let me know if you're going to be there. Maybe we could meet up. And I'm so excited for this. From Star Wars Celebration in Anaheim, Thursday, May 26th through Sunday, May 29th. I'm going to be broadcasting live on Facebook, taking you around the show floor. And I am so incredibly excited and honored and grateful to announce that I'm also going to be part of Star Wars Celebration as I've been invited to record an episode of WW Radio live on the podcast stage on Sunday. I'll be there. My son Nicholas is going to be there. Becky Mankin from Mouse Fan Travel is going to be there. There may be one or two other special guests joining me as well. And if you are at Star Wars Celebration, come be part of the live audience. I'm going to have giveaways, including maybe one or two or more special ones from the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. And obviously stay tuned for that episode in the feed when I get back. We also have our cruises on the Disney Wish, our August 1st cruise. We're taking waitlist names now. Our December 5th Very Merry Time cruise on the Disney Wish. I cannot wait. And our April 15th, 2023 cruise, eight night overnight Disney fantasy in Bermuda and Bahamas. Again, visit the events page for more information and to get a new obligation quote from our friends and partner over in mousefantravel.com. And as always, my friend, and you are my friend, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word, let others know about it, share a link out to this or your favorite episode or interview on social with your friends, tag me so I make sure I can see it and follow you and reshare it. Also, if you can, take just a couple of seconds. If you listen on Spotify, leave a rating there. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, or even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, open up Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review there. I want to thank Victoria B 523 who says, it is just full of heart. Lou truly loves Disney and will make you too. I do, and I hope you do as well. And Jaffa Joe says, Lou Mangiello has been a lifeline for me all the time. I can't be at the world. His knowledge, passion, and respect for the Walt Disney Company is wonderful. He truly gets it, how so many of us feel about Walt Disney World. Lou, like so many of us, loves the history and the story of Disney. His audio tours of the parks really transport you onto Main Street and beyond. 
Thank you, Lou. Keep it up. Thank you, Jaffa Joe. And thank you for your friendship and your time, which I know is so limited and so valuable. The fact that you spend and share it with me means so, so very much. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I hope everything that we do on the podcast and on the live videos and on the blog and the events helps enhance your enjoyment and appreciation of the parks and more importantly, brings a smile to your face as well. It's what I try and do on the podcast and with the video and and on social as well. And I hope that you continue to be the positive, shining, bright light that you want to see in the world. Choose the good. Find the good in everything that you do and be the good for others as well. Remember, if you spread positivity, positivity will spread. Thank you. I love you. I appreciate you. I hope to see you on the live show this Wednesday night or right back here again next week. So until next time, see you. Hi, Lou. This is Holly from Illinois. Uh, I felt compelled to call in after listening to the recent Top 10 Smells episode and the discussion you guys had about uh, smells and memories. Um, I, like many people, have a specific smell that instantly takes me back to Walt Disney World. Um, This one takes me back to uh, Walt Disney World as a child, and I'm guessing that the Disney company actually wouldn't be excited to hear about it. Um, But that smell is the smell of cigarette smoke, actually. Um, So for context, I was fortunate enough to be raised in a house where it was free of tobacco smoke and by a mother who actually has a very, very low tolerance for any type of uh, cigarette smoke smell. Um, to the point that I remember it was probably 97, she insisted that we uh, be given a new room at Caribbean Beach during one of our stays because there was an ever so faint uh, smell of smoke in the room. Um, so as a result, one of the only places that I was ever around smoke growing up um, was during our visits to Disney World. From what I remember about the parks back in the 90s, um, guests were able to smoke in a lot more locations uh, than they are now, um, maybe even just free to kind of smoke wherever outside. Um, so I remember walking through crowds and smelling that distinctive smell of cigarette smoke. Um, so while I wouldn't say that I enjoy the smell by any means, and it's not one that I would hope that maybe Lisa adds to her collection at all, um, it's one that whenever I get a whiff of it, it just instantly takes me back to Walt Disney World um, in the 90s and just all the fun that we had as a family when I was younger. Thank you. Hi, Lou. This is Alexis Gill from Ocala, Florida. I was calling... I had recently been going to past episodes that I did not get the chance to listen to. Um, I was listening to episode 616, which was the 2020 uh, year in review with you and Lisa and Becky and Michael. And I was calling because something kind of sparked my interest. You guys talked a lot about Disney Plus and its effects on 2020 and the benefits um, of it. And one of the benefits that I think is amazing that Disney Plus provides is something that I wish I would have had as a kid. Uh, my parents took me to the parks a lot. However, they never, they never sat me down and said, look at all of these people. They, they work here. There's someone designed that building. Someone made that music. Someone painted that structure or, you know, someone choreographed that dance. And I wish they would have. I wish um, they would have highlighted that that you could have a career in, you know, Walt Disney World or the Disney Company. Uh, it was always something that was very magical and almost too too far from attaining um, for me to focus on that. And I think what Disney Plus has done with some of their uh, showcase, you know, series like Imagineering and um, – 
the One Day at Disney and the Animal Kingdom series that they just uh, rolled out in 2020, I think it's highlighted those career paths for kids. I have a one-year-old, and I can't wait to watch it with him and to say, oh, you like animals? Well, look at this. Look what you could do. You love Disney and animals. You could work there. Or, you know, you love to bake. Look at this pastry chef that works for Pixar, um, you know, at their studios. It just it highlights so many different career opportunities and routes for so many different types of people. And I think that's one thing that Disney Plus has done really, really well and also kind of highlights Walt's vision of always be learning, um, and he's wanting his his company and his parks to provide that for people. So uh, other than that, thank you so much for what you do. It's been great listening to you, and uh, I hope everyone has a great week. Hey, Lou. It's Christine Morrison from Flowertown, Pennsylvania. I have fallen off the wagon a little bit and gotten behind with the podcast and checking in with everybody. So here I am. I just listened to your um, DSI with Becky of Fort Wilderness Lodge and um, not Fort Wilderness, Wilderness Lodge. Sorry, it's early. It's only 630 in the morning, so I haven't had my coffee yet. But um, I love that resort. I can't wait to stay there. I actually had reservations for Christmas time, and then I joined DVC um, at the Riviera, and we decided to stay at the Riviera instead. But I will get there someday. Back on your previous show about the lodge, you talked about a secret drink at Geyser's Point, uh, which I did actually in 2017 when I first started listening to you guys. I went there and got that drink. I'm not even going to tell you what it is, so you have to go and ask. Hopefully it's still there. And when we were walking over, we did happen to catch Happily Ever After being piped in, and we just so happened to catch the um, electric water pageant, which I didn't even know about until then, which is crazy. Um, also, I just thought I'd let you know, you know, my father is one that really sparked my love for Disney, and I actually taught him something about Disney. He did not know anything about Orange Bird and the history of Orange Bird, so when he was here the other day, um, I pulled it up online and um, told him all about it. And he was like, wow, this is awesome. So I actually taught my dad something about Disney. Um, I just wanted to check in. Everybody have a wonderful day. I'm about to go back and listen to the top 10 recap smells. Um, I missed that one somehow. I'm going to go listen to it right now while I drink my coffee. Have a great day. It's Tuesday here in Pennsylvania, and it's going to be relatively warm. It's not too bad. Sweatshirt weather. It's better than coat weather. Make somebody smile, and I'll see you guys tomorrow in the box. And I will be there for Moon Night. Woohoo! Blowing my mind that episode and series. Woo! Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, Lou. Giannis again from California. Um, just wanted to say, man, that Moon Night episode was really cool. You and Sean did a terrific job. I love the whole Jekyll and Hyde of everything, and I love what Sean said towards the end. Just like, for us who are, yeah, we're huge Marvel fans. I'm very familiar with what who Moon Knight is, but I don't have an in-depth, you know, uh, per take on the character itself. So I love watching it with a new set of eyes and just getting into the story. I just love what Marvel is doing. Like, 
we can do a top 10 or a top whatever on all of the characters that are, I mean, all of the series that have come out on Disney Plus, whether it be WandaVision or Loki or, or like it could be anything. But, but the great thing about it is that I haven't had this feeling watching Moon Knight since I've had with the Mandalorian when it first came out. And so like me and my family are just having a great time with it, getting us back into the, the groove of things like, you know, COVID's shaking off and things are getting, you know, back to a sense of normalcy. So it's pretty cool to have this come on a different time when we're out and about and our communities are expanding. We're able to talk to people about it. So just wanted to say, I really love that episode. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for everything that you guys are doing. And I hope to hear from you soon. Can't wait for the next episode. Can't wait to get out to Disney World. You guys have a blessed one. Bye-bye. Hi, Lou. It's Karen from Chicago, and I'm whispering because it is about 3.30 in the morning, and I'm getting ready for my wedding today at Epcot. I'm really excited, although the power is currently out at the hotel, so we're going to figure out how to do hair and makeup without it. <laughs> so, um, thanks. We're going to have a great time.